when you think about it, real estate is a very, very lumpy investment. It's not something that you really want to be moving around too much. So if the objective, for example, is to get the whole of a particular piece of real estate into superannuation and it's currently not held at all, then looking at those different strategies or approaches as to how to acquire it will be important. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 177 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. If you want to invest your super in property, how do you do that? What options are out there? This is the question I asked Peter Bobbin of Argel Lawyers in Sydney. But please just take this as general information for your entertainment and ask your financial advisor for specific advice tailored to your particular circumstances. There are many ways in which a person's superannuation can be invested in property. In the large superannuation funds, of course, this will be via the superannuation fund manager. And many people who will have some form of balanced superannuation investment interest will, of necessity, find that some of their superannuation can be traced, often through a whole sequence of trusts and unit trusts and managed investment schemes, but they'll be able to trace it through to property. Those who want something more direct, more individually controlled, more personally identified, they'll need to use a self-managed superannuation fund. And as again, the name implies, it's all about self-managing those investments. And those investments can be, again, in property. And there's a few ways, of course, that a self-managed superannuation fund can invest in property. Like the large superannuation funds, it can be through managed investment schemes. There are sort of indirect ways of doing it as well through unit trusts. And that could even be on a basis which is expressed in a particular federal court case known as Aussie Golfer, which is a very relatively recent case dealing with the sole purpose test. Remember, the sole purpose test is the single most important investment standard in superannuation. Well, in that case, there was a kind of publicly marketed investment fund that enabled self-managed superannuation funds to have indirect interests, but in very specific property. We won't be spending much time on that, given the very prescriptive and precise nature around which that was designed. Let's look at more simple ways of doing it. So more simple ways of a self-managed superannuation fund being involved in property is, of course, owning it direct. That's number one, if you will. And clearly we're relying on the circumstance where the superannuation fund has enough funds to satisfy the ability to acquire the whole of the real estate. Where that exists, really the options are really quite open, quite flexible, because if that same superannuation fund has the available resources within the fund, I might stress, or over time through future contributions, then it's even possible to modify the property, maybe even subdivide and develop, maybe even convert the property into something completely different from that which is originally bought, maybe a block of units. And that can all be done within 
superannuation. But again, that's where the superannuation fund has not only enough to acquire the property completely, but also further cash resources available either now or through future contributions where they can actually then deal with that property in whatever manner they choose to do so. The options are really quite open. It gets a little more interesting where the self-managed superannuation fund has the desire to invest directly in real estate, but it doesn't have enough of its own financial resources to achieve it. So what are the options? How might they be able to approach this? In simple terms, the principal options for a self-managed superannuation fund having a relatively direct interest in property where the fund does not have sufficient cash are joint acquisition with another. So under this first one, the superannuation fund will contribute its component, perhaps 40%, and another will acquire the remainder of the property, perhaps 60%. That other may be the member themselves, a relative of the member, perhaps a spouse or parent, or can be any other person for that matter. The second approach is through the interposed structure of a unit trust. It's quite similar to the first, whereby the superannuation fund, in my example, will hold direct interest as to 40% and the other person direct interest as to 60%. Both of their names will be on title. Under the second model, there's a unit trust structure and the property commonly is held 100% by that unit trust and the superannuation fund's interest is no longer directly held, it's actually held through units in the unit trust. So again, extending my example, there may be 1,000 units on issue and the superannuation fund will hold 400 and the other person, whomsoever that might be, will hold 600. This can be particularly appropriate where, say, business partners are wanting to come together and hold real estate jointly. That may be leased to the business practice. And there may be changes over those business partnerships over the years. And so instead of constantly changing the name on the title for the relevant property, It's a matter of transferring those units in that unit trust from one party to another party to another party. And this can also facilitate a situation where we might have business partners who each have their own self-managed superannuation fund. And each self-managed superannuation fund will then have those relevant number of units in that unit trust. So we're looking at joint options for ownership. That is where the super fund doesn't have enough to buy It can be direct or it can be through this unit trust model. Now, a third is where the superannuation fund doesn't have enough to buy the whole of the property interest, but it still wants the whole of the property interest. Well, the super fund can do what all of us do, and that, that is we borrow. This is commonly known as a limited recourse borrowing arrangement. It's a very specific rule. It's actually now been around for quite some time, since uh, 2007. And it's just a rule under the superannuation laws that simply say that, well, a superannuation fund is not prohibited 
Yes, I know it's a double negative, but I'm, I'm afraid that's how we lawyers talk. So a superannuation fund is not prohibited, which of course means it is permissible for it to do it. A superannuation fund is not prohibited from borrowing to buy an interest in real estate. However, it goes on to say, the character or the structure of that particular borrowing arrangement must be such that it is limited in recourse. There's a few special rules that apply. Limited in recourse is the single most important. What does that mean? Well, whoever the financier is, and that might sound a bit vague because your first thoughts may be, well, isn't that a bank? We'll talk about that in a moment because that really does open up opportunity for some. Commonly, though, where it's a bank, that bank, that financier, is allowed to take a mortgage over the property that the superannuation fund is buying. But if, because of some catastrophic occurrence, the value of the property falls below the loan, the bank is only able to seek recovery of the loan against the property. In other words, the bank will carry a higher level of risk, quite simply put, because if, say, the super fund had $400,000 and the superannuation fund borrowed $600,000, so we, it acquired this $1 million property, using this limited recourse borrowing arrangement. And for major, major catastrophic reasons, property burnt down, insurance wasn't in place or what have you, that property is now worth a mere 500000 In other words, the debt is underwater. That interest is underwater. Well, the bank can only recover its $600,000 debt against the $500,000 value of the property. Of course, the member has lost their four hundred dollars in this particular example, but this is what we mean by limited recourse borrowing arrangement. It is limited. There are a couple of other um, extra special rules, one of which is the property that the superannuation fund has an interest in must not be held in the name of the superannuation fund trustee. Now, frankly, from my personal perspective, this is a dumb rule, but nevertheless, it's a rule that's in place. And 67A of the Superannuation Industry Supervision Act merely requires that wherever there is a limited recourse borrowing arrangement, the asset that has been acquired with the borrowed funds, in this particular presentation, we're talking about real estate, so the property must not be in the name registered in the name of the superannuation fund trustee. It must be registered in the name of another trust, commonly called a ban or simple nominee, who holds the property for the benefit of the superannuation fund whilst ever that loan is in existence. Peter, is the bear trust actually on the title or the corporate trustee of the bear trust actually on the title? Now, now, exactly whose name is then put onto the real estate when you've got a limited recourse borrowing arrangement in place? That would actually vary across Australia, I'm afraid. You see, in New South Wales, the property laws do not enable a trust interest to be directly expressed on the title to the real estate. So in New South Wales, if there's a self-managed superannuation fund limited recourse borrowing arrangement, commonly described 
LRBA, then that nominee trustee, which is commonly a company, their name will be on the title. If one did a land and property title search, you would find that it is the name of the nominee company, commonly a company, that will be on the title in New South Wales. In other jurisdictions, perhaps in Queensland, for example, we will still have the name of the nominee on the title because that's part of the requirements of this Section 67A, but Queensland does allow recognition of a trust interest. So it's quite possible we can look at the title to a property, the subject of this superannuation borrowing arrangement in Queensland, and find that the existence of the bare trust relationship in favour of the self-managed superannuation fund is disclosed on title. And when you say nominee, who's the nominee? The trustee? The bare trustee. So when we talk about a nominee for these purposes, of course, the, that is the bare trustee. That is the one who, in effect, is nominated by the superannuation fund to be the registered title holder of the real estate. It's their name that will be on title. And as I've already said, whether or not the trust interest or the superannuation fund interest is also recognised on title will be a matter of what state or territory of Australia the arrangement has been put in place for. When it comes to SMSF LRBAs, how's that for an acronym? More recently, when I say more recently, that's from around uh, 2016, 17 onwards, several of the larger financial institutions have actually backed out of this market. That is, they don't offer as freely as they did the opportunity to borrow for a self-managed superannuation fund to borrow to buy real estate. That's not to say that there are no par- parties in the market. They certainly are. Often you'll also find, however, that whoever is providing that funding will charge just slightly higher interest rates. Now, when you compare that to the loan-to-value ratio, which is usually quite low, you do have some challenging questions as to how it is that they're able to charge that higher interest rate. They, of course, will explain it from the risk perspective that they carry because, again, recall that it is a limited recourse borrowing arrangement. That is, the lender is unable to seek full recompense from anything other than the real estate, keeping our property focus, over which the loan has been provided. This is why some who have the capacity will actually be the lender themselves. There's actually no express rule in the superannuation principles that requires the party that's advancing the loan under the LRBA arrangement to be a, an ADI, an approved deposit institution, that is, a bank. So there's no reason why the LRBA cannot be provided by the member personally, members of that member's family, or perhaps even a trust or company that the member has in place. There are, however, some important rules to be aware of when constructing a self-funded LRBA. What the 
Australian Taxation Office has done is come up with a whole bunch of guidelines, which you can pretty well Google and find those main principles. The Australian Taxation Office is approaching this from not so much the superannuation laws, because the primary area that exists there is your Section 62 sole purpose test, and anybody doing a superannuation borrowing over real estate is commonly very much focused on their retirement. So Section 102 is not considered generally to be a problem. Or Section 109 of, again, that same law, which we commonly call the CIS Act. But that has very limited application and very shallow in the way it operates. So this is why when looking at personally funded limited recourse borrowing arrangements, the tax office falls largely upon Section 295-550 of the Income Tax Assessment Act 1997 and through application or description of that section imposes an imperative that the limited recourse borrowing arrangement that is self-funded must be on an arm's length basis. That's the key here. As long as it's on an arm's length basis in its myriad of ways, so arm's length in this context doesn't merely mean that the interest rate is comparable to what a third party would charge. It's also the documentation and the process that's actually adopted that's equally as important. So as long as it's on an arm's length basis and there's some particular guidelines that the Australian Taxation Office has put out, which if you search for ATO guidelines, superannuation, LRBA, you'll find it's one of your top finds under uh, your search engine. Then you'll be able to get the directions that the tax office is wanting to ensure is in place for what they term is an approved self-managed superannuation fund, LRBA, on a private basis. When engaging or developing the strategy for your self-managed superannuation fund to become involved in, directly involved in real estate, really it's important that a long, long-term plan be considered, whatever long-term means for you. Because it, when you think about it, real estate is a very, very lumpy investment. It's not something that you really want to be moving around too much. So if the objective, for example, is to get the whole of a particular piece of real estate into superannuation and it's currently not held at all, then looking at those different strategies or approaches as to how to acquire it will be important. But you also need to take that longer-term view because you really need to think about where there's not enough in the superannuation fund to acquire the whole of it up front. How will those progressive purchases be managed? As we've already said, there could be a joint acquisition with a member or a business partner. There could be a limited recourse borrowing arrangement. How will those additional monies be placed into it? There's also the other end of the spectrum. There's the application of the death benefit or the retirement benefit. You need to plan for that, to put it simply. Nowadays, it can be quite difficult, depending upon the amounts involved and who are the family relationship that's left over, for it can be somewhat difficult for superannuation of a person to stay in a superannuation environment on their death. 
generally speaking, on death, superannuation has to be dealt with within a reasonable period of time, commonly identified to be six or perhaps 12 months. And if the level of the superannuation amount that we're talking about or the character of it and to whom it is to be paid is such that superannuation has to be taken out or at least a portion of it must be taken out and the underlying investment is very lumpy, such as real estate, well, some thought has to be given as to how to take that, that out. And this is where uh, considerations in, the, in that longer five to 10-year plan, as I've said earlier, might be given to holding, for example, special insurance, special life insurance to be able to, within the superannuation fund, to be able to provide a certain degree of cash to open up the flexibilities that might exist at that unfortunate but to be expected future time frame. So rolling back, if we acquire a less than whole interest in superannuation or perhaps we require it through this limited recourse borrowing arrangement, how are we going to make those future acquisitions and how are we going to pay off that loan? Commonly, it's done through future contributions, of course, as well through earnings. Those future contributions can then be met and applied in a manner whereby further continuous interests in the property can be acquired. Now, if that's the intent, just maybe the self-managed superannuation fund should, provided it's done on arm's length terms, enter into a continuous series of options. Because, of course, if the character of the acquisition of the real estate is such that it's going to be over perhaps year on year after, over a number of years, five or six years, because, of course, under the superannuation contribution caps now, I can only contribute, subject to the whole range of rules that exist around there, which we won't go into on this occasion, but generally speaking, I can only contribute $100,000 on an after-tax basis per year and well, I can probably also get $25,000 in on a, on a pre-tax basis, which suffers a bit of tax when it's received by the super fund, plus there may be a little bit of rental. Now, if I only own half of that million-dollar property, there's another 500000 that I'll need to acquire, I intend to acquire, over the coming years. Now, the problem with that, of course, is as every year progresses, the value of that property goes up. And every time I make a new acquisition, I've got to deal with a new property interest, a new property value. That property, which, if we're very fortunate, was purchased at $1 million, may in a year's time have a value, say, of $1,100,000. So you can see how we're acquiring new interests, but a lower percentage using the same flat number because we can't get more into the superannuation fund. So... One thing to give some thought to, however, is just right up front, do you try to lock in that original value through enabling the superannuation fund to acquire an option or series of options to acquire those future interests? That way it's acquiring at that original purchase price arrangement. So be careful with entering into arrangements of that nature because they need to have an arm's length referable relationship. But it can be quite a useful thing. You also need to give some thought to uh, the, the character of the property that's being acquired because under the superannuation laws, 
Under Section 66, a superannuation fund must not acquire an asset from the member unless it is listed securities or business real property. So if that million-dollar property that was purchased was a residential property and if it was jointly purchased half by my self-managed super fund and half by me, what we've created is a situation whereby my superannuation fund cannot acquire anything more from me because it's not business real property where it's merely residential, again, no common sense to this particular rule, just a rule, but it's an important rule. It's a rule in superannuation that must be followed. So if the plan is to acquire residential property and I want to get the whole of it into superannuation, but I don't have enough in superannuation to do that, really I'm fairly well limited to using the limited recourse borrowing arrangement process. Otherwise, I'll be committing to be a joint owner with my superannuation fund if I'm the one that's buying the balance. Oh, incidentally, again, extending this example, if we have this million-dollar property and the superannuation fund is putting up its 500, it's not borrowing, perhaps I'm buying the other half for 500, but, but again, perhaps I'm borrowing to make that purchase. I can't use that real estate as security. You see, if I'm borrowing... This is outside of superannuation. Now, if I'm personally borrowing so as to enable me to acquire the other half of the property that the superannuation fund will not be owning, I can't take a mortgage or security over the superannuation fund's interest. I can only take or, or, or give that mortgage or security over the portion that I personally am acquiring. And that's why you must always buy it as tenants in common and not as joint tenants. And that's why it will always be held as tenants in common, not as joint tenants, because really the joint tenant ownership, whilst technically it's available, it's quite an anathema when it comes to jointly held property with a superannuation fund. For those who are well aware, property holders' joint tenants will on the death of one joint tenant owner, pass automatically by sheer dint of the fact of the joint tenancy relationship. It will pass automatically to the surviving joint owner. Now, in a circumstance where I and my self-managed superannuation fund may be the joint owners, the problem is, well, the superannuation fund has perpetual existence, and I don't, I'm afraid. So really joint tenancy in a situation where I own it as joint tenant with my superannuation creates in a practical or at least maybe not practical but certainly in a technical sense creates a certainty that the superannuation fund will in the event of death own the whole of the property. And that can be quite problematic because if automatically the superannuation fund gains that other component interest, well, I think you'll find the taxation office will treat that as a contribution and a contribution of that nature is likely to be an excess contribution and really you don't want to go anywhere near excess superannuation contribution tax issues. So make sure that that acquisition where it's jointly held is held on a tenant in common basis and if the intention is to acquire more of that real estate over the coming years, maybe consider options to lock down the value that the super funds are buying at, but be careful to ensure that 
What you're dealing with is business real property, not residential property, not property let on a domestic residential basis, but business real property. That can be property that's zoned residential as long as it's being used in a business, not your business, not your business partner's business, not your partner's business. It can be anybody's business. So if we got that three or four bedroom house at Chatswood or Turak or wherever you may be, and it's being rented by a dentist, though the property may be uh, zoned residential, it's being rented by a dentist, then you'll find it's business real property and that's quite okay. So using my example, you've got 1 million, there's 500 left. You've now got 122,000 after tax but the property is now worth 1100000 So to buy another 10%, you've actually got to put in 110000 which you can, but it's actually costing you more and it'll just keep escaping. Yes, and once you hit the $1.6 million... It, you, can't, you, you, can't get, you can't get any more in, that's right. And the $1.6 million goes by the current market value. Um, that's right, and as you get close to $1.6 um, certain shading limits come in to stop you contributing to super. The moment the property or the share of the property you hold hits 1.6 million, you can't contribute anymore. Well, what, once the whole of the superannuation fund, you can't contribute on an after-tax basis, you can still do your uh, deductible contributions. Another reason why I'm very much encouraging sitting down, doing that five to ten year planning, and spreadsheets are fabulous for that, of course, is just superannuation contribution limits. Because not only do we have this contribution limit of 100000 per year or maybe 300000 on a brought forward or $25,000 on a deductible or, dare I say, 300000 if you're talking about the proceeds from selling a residential home or... Yes, there is more. If one is selling an active asset in a small business environment, you could actually contribute up to 1.4 million. And that number actually changes year on, year on. So there are quite a number of different contribution rules. But one contribution rule that's also important is as the amount in superannuation approaches 1.6, certain shading then occurs to limit those future contributions. Oh, excluded from that is where the money is being sourced from the sale of a former home or from the sale of an active asset involved in a business. They actually uh, stand uh, to, the, to the side, so to speak, and are not impacted by approaching a $1.6 million in value. But for the vast majority of other people where those rules don't have application because maybe you're, you're an employed person or a contractor that doesn't really have something that's capable of being sold in the character of being a, a, a small business enterprise, you'll have those limits of one hundred on an after-tax basis and $25,000 on a pre-tax basis. And as the superannuation interest gets close to one6 you'll be in a position that where you won't be able to make any more of those after-tax or up to $100,000 superannuation contributions. And depending upon the value of the property you've acquired and just how successful you've been, 
there may reach a point in time when you actually can't put enough in to continue to make those progressive annual contribution purchases of the part of the superannuation that you left out of the super fund but was part of your progressive purchase strategy. That's where you may need to give some thought to, well, and let's look at the different concepts of, well, do I expand membership of my self-managed superannuation fund, perhaps for a spouse, because now between the pair of us, we can do 1.6 each or 3.2. Perhaps I might allow friends or business partners or colleagues or children to join. And presently, we're talking about allowing up to four members of a self-managed superannuation fund. So that'll take us up to 6.4. And in the budget of um, a few years ago, uh, there was talk of allowing it to go up to six. So that, there we're talking about something like 7.8 in the single superannuation fund. And again, depending upon that value of the property involved, well, we may have to go to, to joint ownership. And joint ownership um, involving multiple superannuation funds may be a necessary uh, process if the character of the property we're looking at is somewhat higher and uh, somewhat outstretches the ability of a single superannuation fund to actually make that acquisition, then, of course, you're entering into a joint venture arrangement. That is a joint venture arrangement between your superannuation fund and another, be it a relative or business partner. I would strongly recommend, very strongly recommend, that you put in place agreement terms to deal with breakdown to deal with separation just so that the rules are known because having arguments in the middle of dealing with superannuation can simply give rise to problems um, and they're uh, not very good problems particularly when it relates to your superannuation uh, which of course is what you're looking for for your future retirement perspectives. In the time that we've had, what I've sought to do is just to take you through superannuation and property. Be it very, very large, that is you're a member of a very large superannuation fund, or self-managed. And it's that self-managed that really opens up flexibility opportunity. But it really does require you to do for you to do some long-term planning. That long-term planning is all about do you have enough? If you don't, how will you have enough and how will you get that enough into superannuation? Should you be co-venturing with another and who might that be? Should you be supporting your own superannuation fund toward achieving that objective? Perhaps through a self-funded limited recourse borrowing arrangement or perhaps borrowing from a third party. And once you do have that property in the superannuation fund, what can you do with it going forward? On another occasion, we'll look at a range of other issues which will be relevant for property and self-managed superannuation funds. Thank you. Welcome back. So there are five options to invest super and property based on my very rudimentary understanding of the issue. But please discuss all this with your financial advisor. The first option, as I understand it, is to just invest your super 
in a managed property fund. And if your super is not in an SMSF, but in an industry or government or retail fund, then that is usually the only option you have. The second option is to bring another cashed up member directly into your SMSF so that your SMSF has the cash it needs to buy the property. So let's say you have half a million in cash sitting in your SMSF and you bring another member in who also has half a million. So then your SMSF can buy a property for a million. The third option is to have your SMSF jointly buy the property with somebody else. And this other entity might be you or another member or a business partner or somebody else. Often it is you and then over time you contribute further tranches of the property into your SMSF as the contribution caps and bring forward rules allow. The fourth option is to have a unit trust buy the property and then your SMSF and other SMSFs or entities acquire units in this unit trust. And the fifth option is to have your SMSF buy the entire property and then to finance any shortfall with funds outside the SMSF through an LRBA, either with a loan from you or another member or a third party like a bank. So these are five options to invest super into property and which ones are available to you and most suited for your circumstances depends on how much cash you have inside and outside of super, what your objectives are and of course also how much cash other members or third parties might have and whether they are willing to join forces with you and your SMSF. So it all depends on your actual circumstances. Over the next three episodes... We will look at personal insurance with Daniel Mikhail of Partners Wealth Group in Sydney. Let's start with life insurance in the next episode, episode 178. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.